This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right. You ready? <clears throat> I think most of you came back. That's great. And uh, we'll have stragglers that'll come in. So that should fill us back up. So I know that probably several of you had questions after that first session. I mean, you had questions. What about this? What about that? Why do you, what, about, what do you think about this and this? We'll probably answer those questions as we go. And uh, we're going to talk about, like I said, I'm just going to tell you this ahead of time. That And then we'll come to it and we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit more. But as I said at the break, we are not, what I'm not doing is saying you should not do any kind of sport. Does that make sense? But, but the balancing element is, does it, am I striving to, to, to have dominance over someone else? That's, that's the issue. And so I want you to understand that before we keep going here. But let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dive back in. You ready? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come back for part two, and uh, we just ask your special blessing to be with us now, that the Holy Spirit would enlighten uh, our minds and our hearts, that you would give me energy and clarity of thought uh, from being sick this week, Lord, and I just pray that your presence would be in this room, but more importantly, in our hearts and in our minds. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in the first segment, we talked about the idea or the concept that sports build what? Character. Based upon science and evidence, did we find that in most cases, sports build character, or do sports typically decline character? Competitive sports, when I say that, sports. What does it typically do? It typically declines. And not necessarily building character, but revealing character, right? So the second point that many people make is that sports will build self-esteem. How many of you have heard this concept before, that sports build self-esteem? Many people try to make that case. <clears throat> but my question would be, based on what? Building uh, self-esteem based upon what? So let's talk about this. And this type of setting, in the setting of competitive sports, self-worth is based on my own performance or my dominance of other people. Am I right or wrong? That's what my self-esteem is. Does my self-esteem build, I mean, how many of you have ever played football? Just raise your hands if you played like high school football or college football or something. Does it build the offensive lineman's self-esteem when the quarterback or the running back gets all the touchdowns and all the glory and all the girls, so to speak. Does it build his self-esteem? No, it doesn't. Right? And so my point is, does it build my self-esteem in competitive sports when others do well? Not typically. But it only builds my self-esteem when who does well? When I do well. Therefore, in order for me to do well, someone else must do Worse. I mean, it, you, you cannot escape that. It's like A plus B equals C. I mean, it's just going to be the natural effect 
If I'm going to do better, someone else has to do worse. I have to put someone down. I remember the, when I was in high school, we were in a practice, and there were two other guys that could even remotely come close to my level of, of playing. And, I, and I'm not saying that, again, boastfully, but I just was the biggest and the best on the team. It's just the way it was. It's just the fact. But these two guys came the closest. The one guy was about this tall, and he was about this wide. He was a big boy. And uh, the other guy was actually taller than me, but he wasn't as broad or as... And I remember we were in a drill, and I had to be the best. And I remember both of them, they were coming off, and I had to come out, and I had to hit them. And one of the guys, I caught him off guard, knocked him flat on his back, so that everybody would know who's the best, right? The other guy, he was kind of like staggering like this because he lost his footing. And what did I do? I plowed him when he had lost his footing just so that everyone else would see how hard he would hit the ground and that everyone would know that he was nowhere close to me. I mean, like, you might say, well, that's extreme. But the reality is, when you truly think about it, when you truly are honest with yourself, that is the mindset of most team players. They may, it, you, may, you, may, you may string them up on a rack before they would actually admit that. But that is the mindset. That I might be on a team, but I'm going to be the best on the team. So, in that setting, self-worth is based upon my own performance or domination of others. It comes from myself, not from who? Not from God. Shall we find out who is the greatest, the prettiest, the best, the strongest, and the smartest? Bigger, as you can see from this picture, is not always what? Better. Bigger, stronger is not always better. I mean, if I'm a big fish and I go in the same size bowl as the other fish, I'm in trouble, right? You ever heard big fish in a little pond? That's what I was. I was a big fish in a little pond. But when I got to the big pond... In college, as I told you my first day of college football practice in the last session, I found out that I was a little fish in a big pond, right? And there's always somebody, no matter how big, no matter how strong, no matter how good you are, there's always going to be somebody bigger, stronger, and better than you, right? And we struggle with that. We struggle with that as human beings, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, the Bible speaks very powerfully on this. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. <clears throat> so that whole concept of competitive sports where I'm going to be the best, is that wise or unwise according to Scripture? Because what are we doing? We're, commending, we're comparing ourselves, classing ourselves, commending ourselves, measuring ourselves. That just le- How many of you get stressed out when you have to do that? I mean, with guys, it's who's the biggest, strongest, and, and, and baddest. For girls, it's who's the prettiest, who's the skinniest, who's the you know, most fashionable, or whatever. I mean, it goes the same thing with girls, just as it does with guys, right? And the Bible says, look... What a wonderful thing that we can be free from that and not have to live that kind of a life. That's what the gospel offers to us, you understand. 
It offers us freedom from that kind of anxiety and stress of always having to worry that I'm number one. How many think that's a great thing? How many think God is good to offer that to us? Because there's only one that's the best, amen? It's the one that died for your sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-6. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does that sound like you can incorporate that type of character trait into the competitive sports world, yes or no? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it's very difficult to do that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. <clears throat> that being said, what is God's counsel to us? Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue what? Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce what? Quarrels. I mean, think that's good advice to flee youthful lust. What are youthful lust? Who is the strongest, the prettiest, the richest, and the smartest, or the best, right? Don't worry about it. Why does competition appeal so much to the natural human heart? Well, James tells us, Chapter 4, verse 13, 18, he says, Who is among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. And what kind? What is it? Gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, is there bitter jealousy in competitive sports? Yep. And selfish ambition. Is that, you find that in competitive sports? Yep. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So to contain bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, to allow that to foster and develop and grow in my heart, it doesn't have to be competitive sports. It could be any other avenue. But to allow that to grow in our hearts, don't miss this, is doing what? It is lying against the truth. That ought to hit you hard. It ought to hit us all hard. It's lying against the truth. Those characteristics lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is what? Earthly, natural, demonic. You realize some people say, demonic? Demonis, um, demons have various ways of, of um, revealing themselves. Does, it's not always the woman with her head spinning around. I said woman. It could be man, too. Uh, not always the one. I was thinking about that movie, Exorcist, you know, years and years ago. I don't watch that stuff. I promise you I don't watch any of that kind of... I hardly watch TV at all. I don't... I watch a documentary ever so often. But anyway, you know, demon possession isn't just somebody spinning with their head around spitting out pea soup, right? I mean, it can be, it can be in various forms. Many of the mental illnesses we have today in society, I think, are demonic influence. So it can... So I'm, am I saying that competitive sports is demonic? No. Okay. I'm saying that can it have a negative influence on us? Yes. And who brings about all negative influences? Satan and his angels, right? All right. So where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. So many people think that 
Sports bring discipline, but it actually ultimately in the long term brings disorder to the life. And I can attest to that. Same way with caffeine. You know, people talk about caffeine and they say, well, caffeine gives me that short high, but in the long term, it creates greater problems for you. Yes, sir. Is it wrong? James 3. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. James chapter 3. I had a typo. That happens. <laughs> Double check me. Uh, but the wisdom that is from above is first what? Pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. How many of you would like to have those characteristics in your life? And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who do what? Make peace. So why does James say, or why are we drawn to competition? James tells us because we naturally have those first things in our hearts. The bitter jealousy, the ambition, the selfish ambition, the arrogance. Those things as sinful human nature, we have naturally. It just comes to us. So it's no wonder that competitive sports is a draw for many people because it's natural for your heart to crave those things. Make sense? So I'm not saying that, like, I'm just saying that you can understand that the battle is going to be real because in your natural flesh, you're drawn to it. But competitive sports build a competitive spirit, not self-worth. The real object is to win and be supreme. Where should we get our self-esteem from? What do you think? Or our self-worth? From where? From God. Go with me quickly to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is one of the most beautiful passages, I think, in Scripture. <clears throat> John chapter 17. And verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 21. <clears throat> Does anybody have a cough drop? I left my cough drops in my room. Terrible. If you got one, you would slip it up. That would be great. Thank you very much. I'll pay you back. I got a whole bag in my room. All right. Jesus, let's start in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, just that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And notice what he says here that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow, I'm going to have a, have a cough drop factory up here. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate that. But notice what Jesus says. He says that I and you, you and me, that they may be one in us. Okay? Think about this for just a minute. Jesus is inviting you and I into such a relationship with Him that we are becoming one with Him and one with the Father. In other words, there's this inner circle that, that Jesus invites us into. And the people in the circle are who? The Father, the Son, and who else? The Holy Spirit. Who was not allowed to actually go into that circle? Who? Lucifer. And that's part of the reason he rebelled. 
and he was ultimately cast out of heaven. And yet, God is inviting you and I, sinful human beings, into that circle of relationship, the depth of relationship that the Father and Son have. There is no greater bond in the universe than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yes? No greater bond. And God says, just as we're one, we want to be one with you. And we're inviting you into that circle. How many think that that's like the most amazing, mind-blowing thing you've ever heard of? If Lucifer, a sinless, heavenly angel, in fact, the highest of the highest of angels, was not capable of entering into that circle and was kicked out of heaven because he tried to force himself into it, then how is it that very sinful human beings like you and I are able to go into that circle of relationship? How is that even possible? That's it. Is that is because Christ became who? He became man. He didn't become an angel. He became you and I. Are you with me? And that bridge allows us to enter into such a relationship with him and the Father that bind us to him and them as one. That ought to boost, if you're self-worth today, if you came into this seminar, if you came to GYC saying, man, I, 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 just, feel, I just feel low, I just feel like God doesn't love me, He doesn't accept me, He, he, he doesn't want me, I, I don't have any self-worth, I just feel the lowest of the low, that ought to, that ought to boost your self-worth to a level that it could never come down from. If you really believe that, that we are invited into a circle that even the angels of heaven are not invited into because Christ became one of us and we are bonded to Him. We are connected to Him through a bond that cannot be broken through the ceaseless ages of eternity. When Jesus took on humanity, He didn't just simply take it on while He was on the earth. He took it on and He kept it on and will keep it on throughout eternity. Jesus is a man forever. He's also fully God, but he's fully man. Are you with me? Now, if you drop down to verse 23, um, uh, verse 23, he says, I am them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. And notice what he says here. And have loved them as you have loved me. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Father, and who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's saying that the Father has loved you and I as much as He has loved Jesus Himself. How many of you think if there was ever any love that could exist in the universe, it would have to be God's love for His only Son, right? Amen? I mean, that, like, there, there, if, there's, if there's not any, there can't be possibly any greater love than that, right? And yet God says, Jesus said that God the Father has loved us as he has loved Jesus, with the same love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How many can say amen to that? It was a little gospel sermon for you there. But listen, the self-worth you can gain through Christ is infinitely greater than any self-worth that you will ever accomplish 
through competitive sports, competitive academics, competitive fashions, competitive anything, you will never gain enough self-worth to bring true joy to your life like you will when you give your life wholly to Christ and you enter into his service and you find that joy by abiding daily with him. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Somebody ought to say amen. 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 Now, I'm going to switch over to my other slideshow here. All right. What did I just do? I'm at the end here. All right. Here we go. All right. So, this is just a review. I'm going to slip past this because I normally would do this in a couple of ways. Have we, have we been fair? What do you think? Man, you guys are so quiet. <laughs> Most quiet people I've ever heard. All right. But you're with me. I can tell. That's good. All right. Sports build self-esteem. Did we find that to be true? Not really. Not as much as Christ can be, yes? All right. Number three, sports teach teamwork. How many of you have heard that uh, argument before? And is it true? Yes. To a degree. But listen, on every team, there's always a star. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, you could take the worst players of any sport of any team. You could take, of any sport, you could take the worst players of all the teams, and you could bring them together, and they're still going to be a best player on the team. Make sense? Like even amongst the worst ones, okay? But here's the thing. When you get a team of all-stars together, does that typically work well or not so well? Not so well. There, in fact, there's like increased fighting, increased tension, because they're all used to being number one. They're all used to being the team leader or the team captain or whatever. And so you have this concept that, yeah, there is, it, it, it might build a teamwork, but everyone is working in subjection to someone else's superiority, okay? And so that teamwork is not always so much teamwork. So here's a question that we have to ask ourselves. You say, well, you know, I, you know I'm, I might be the star of my team, but I always encourage my players and that kind of a thing. Well, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Even on my own team, do I strive to be the best on the team? Do I dominate over other teammates so that I can be the best? <coughs> no one would ever say this publicly, but are we doing it internally? Are we internalizing it? Do I sacrifice what's best for the team so that I can look good? How many times has that ever happened, do you think? Maybe the team could have done better, but I made myself look better, so I got more points, but it may have even cost me the game. It happens. Do I only find satisfaction when I am recognized or pointed out? Could I go a whole season with my best friend being the one that always gets the acknowledged, the coach's son, <laughs> right? Coach's son always gets the recognition, yeah? 
Can I be the one that, that allows that even though I might be better than them? Do I blame others if things don't go right? Right? True teamwork uh, doesn't have that. Now, there's this thing, this concept. I've, I've named this concept. I call it the circle of dominance. Okay? And I'm going to share, uh, share a testimony with you. But the circle of dominance is that the answer to all those questions I showed you can be yes. As long as what? No one else in my circle is better than me. Right? As long as I'm the best on my team, as long as there's no one else there to threaten me, I can be humble. Yeah? I can be, I can be uplifting to my teammates. I can be a, a good, positive leader. I can have good character. As long as there's no one else in my circle of influence that challenges my authority as being the best. And this is true. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, like you know, for instance, <clears throat> I mean, I'm just going to use a very simple example. Suppose you're a young man and you, and you like a certain young lady. And she's had, you know, some male friends for her whole life and they've been friends for years. But, and as long as it's you and her with the lady friends... All is well, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, we're having a great time. But the moment those male friends come into the picture, what are you doing? Who is this guy? <laughs> Why is she talking to him like that? Why is she putting her hand on his shoulder like that? Why is she laughing? Like, she's never laughed like that with me. What kind, of, what, kind of, what kind of job does this guy got? What kind of car is he driving? What kind of, what kind of clothing does he wear? You know, we're always comparing, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm, I, I, it's, it's this facade that I can maintain a Christ-like character, but the truth is that when I'm in this kind of mindset, I can only maintain that character as long as there's no other threat to me. And I'll give you an example. When I, I had cancer in 2009, almost died, and that changes your perspective on a lot of things in life. Before that time... I, you know, had done a lot of speaking in different places and whatnot, spoken at GYC and et cetera, et cetera. And I always used to think when I would see GYC, and maybe that year I didn't, wasn't invited to speak. And I would think to myself, well, why did they invite him instead of me? Because I'm a better speaker than him. I mean, I've heard his sermons, and I mean, he's good, but I'm better. I mean, you laugh, and I laugh about it now, but the truth is that I used to think that. I used to think to myself, I used to think about leaders who were the heads of ministries, and I thought, you know, in 10 years I could be doing that, or whatever. I mean, I used to just compare myself. And I would love to have people come and gather around me, but if there was, I was at an event, and there was a, a speaker whom people were talking about their presentations more than mine, I thought, you know, I would get jealous. And as, but as long as I was in the spotlight, I was fine. I, I, could, I, I was calm, I was, I was not bothered, I was happy. But the moment I had a challenge to that, 
to that um, competitiveness or that dominance, that's when my threat came. And all you gentlemen in the room know exactly what I'm talking about. Is that a Christ-like mentality, yes or no? Christ and his love for you would seek to set you free from that type of a lifestyle. And let me tell you what, today I rejoice. I don't seek invitations to speak. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not boasting in that, but I, I, it's just a different mindset. And so we need to have that experience. Doesn't, doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that those thoughts wouldn't still pop into my mind, but it's what I do with them, right? All right, John, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I think most of you are probably familiar with this passage, but it's a beautiful passage. Philippians chapter 2, verse... I'm going to start in verse uh, 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing... Verse 3 is powerful. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others better than himself. I mean, let me tell you, that is true power. That is true, uh, I mean, that is true greatness, is to have that type of a mindset where you're so dead to self that Christ can live and shine fully through you, and you can see others as better than yourself rather than always trying to figure out how you're better than them. I mean, there would be people that I would think to myself, well, you know, like, yeah, he can, he can do that. Like, he can, he can play tennis really well. But you know what? I would crush that guy in football. So I might, there might be something that he is totally going to blow me away in, but I find that one thing that I can beat him in, and I say, yeah, I'm good, because he ain't going to touch me there. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? And so... Um, going on then, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Do you know what that text actually means? This isn't the clearest translation of that text. But when he says, when he, says he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, you know what that word robbery actually means? It means that he didn't consider it something to, be, to hold on to. Or to maintain. In other words, when Jesus was God, I mean, he's always been God, but when, being divine before he came to the earth, and when man fell into sin, when he looked at our condition of being fallen into sin, he thought to himself, what, what greatness is it to be God if I cannot do something to save my people? And I'm willing to lay that down if necessary to be able to come and do something for them. Does that make sense? So Jesus was even willing to let go of the greatest of the greatest. To be willing to come and do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. How many think that's powerful? I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Amen? All right. So then he goes on. He says, uh, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, 
even the death of the cross. And so if Jesus had have come as a perfect angel, if Jesus had have lowered himself to just be an angel, it would have been an infinite insult to him. And yet he lowered himself to become one of us in sinful human flesh. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee would bow and in heaven and those earth, and that every tongue would confess that he is the Lord. So why is Christ so exalted in heaven? It's not just because he's strongest, he's greatest, he's the best. That's not the only reason. That's not the main reason. Why is it that Jesus is exalted? Because he did what? Because he lowered himself. You follow me? You see what I'm saying? Satan would tell you that he should be worshipped because he's the greatest, he's the strongest, he's the smartest, he's the most brilliant, whatever. But Christ is exalted because he made himself lower than anyone else was ever willing to go or could go. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Jesus washed the feet of his disciples to overthrow rivalry, rivalry among the disciples about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. I love in the book Desire of Ages, in that chapter where she talks about when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, she says this phrase, she says, he would teach them a lesson that they would never forget about humility. That's the kind of mentality that Jesus is seeking for us. Look at this. Christ had on one occasion sought to prepare the minds. This is from the 13th manuscript, 176. Christ had on one occasion sought to prepare the minds of the disciples for the scenes of suffering that were before him. They did not comprehend what he was trying to teach them, but a shadow as of some great sorrow fell upon them. Yet even in this time of sadness, the spirit of unholy rivalry found a place in their hearts. Listen, Jesus was preparing himself to die. Jesus was on the road to the garden, preparing himself to die. And if you read those chapters in Desire of Ages, it says that his body was even swaying back and forth, that he, he, he was almost staggering and falling to the ground because he was actually already beginning to die. And even as that dark shadow settled over the heart of Jesus, the disciples still found it in their hearts to try to figure out who was the greatest among them. I mean, it's mind-blowing how selfish the human heart can be. And that's exactly the same condition that we're in unless we have a renewed heart from Him, unless His righteousness covers unrighteousness. Jesus read their thoughts. He called the disciples and inquired in regard to their disputes, by the way. And He took a little child and setting Him in the midst of them, He said, Verily I say to you, except ye be what? Converted and become as little children. You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore shall humble himself as this child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then she says, this lesson is for who? It's for us. Unselfish love. um, From Manuscript 24, 1896. Unselfish love among brethren. It says, when the laborers have an abiding Christ in their own souls, when all selfishness is what? Dead. When there is no rivalry, no strife for supremacy, when oneness exists, 
Then when they sanctify themselves so that love for one another is seen and felt, the showers of grace of the Holy Spirit will just as surely come upon them as God's promise will never fail in one jot or tittle. When the work of others is discounted and the workers may show their own superiority, they prove that their own work does not bear the signature it should and God cannot bless them. In other words, does this competitiveness bleed over into the church, yes or no? It does. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less often. We can say amen. 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 Not always having to be number one. God wants us to have rulership over ourselves, not each other. You see? There's nothing wrong with competing with yourself. Amen? You want to compete with yourself. You want to compete with the struggles of sin in your life. Competition in that sense is very wonderful. But competition with each other is a facade because I might be able to dominate you, but if I can't dominate myself, then I've done no good at all for me, for you, or for the rest of the world, or for eternity. What about Paul's competition illustrations? Some of you were wondering about that. Well, Paul talks about competing, right? Yeah? Where it is, 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes, against, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last. So Paul here is making a distinction between the races of earth for a crown that perishes and the race of heaven for a crown that does not perish. Two different what? Races. Okay? And, and some people say, well, yeah, but he makes a comparison. Well, the greater comparison to me is that he's distinguishing the crown that perishes from the crown that does not. It's not so much the race itself. He says, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, or I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it slave so that I can, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he's saying that my running of my race is not just for me, but it's for who? It's for who? It's for others. Now, now, now don't miss this point. Remember, how many races is he talking about here? Two different races. One for a crown that perishes. The other for a crown that doesn't perish. If I run the race for the crown that perishes, what has to happen, and I win the race, what has to happen to my to my fellow racers. They lose. Right? But if I run the race for the eternal race, the, the race of heaven, what happens to my fellow racers if I win? They also win. Does that make sense? They also win. Two very different types of races. I don't know why this keeps doing this, but it doesn't pull up all my slides. All right, there we go. In, is Scripture contradicting itself? Can Paul condemn rivalry on one hand and then support the rivalry of competitive sports? Well, no. 
The real answer is that he uses the Olympic Games as a symbol of the discipline needed in the Christian's personal struggle against sin. That's the issue that he's pointing out. He's not talking about or promoting competitive athletics. So here's the question. We asked this before. Now we're going to look at it. Can we learn? Are there certain positive traits that can be learned in competitive sports? Yes. Hard work, discipline, etc. We talked about that. But the question is, can we learn those things in a positive way without getting the bad stuff too? That's the goal. I mean, if we got a I mean, look, I had chemotherapy when I had cancer. You know what chemotherapy is? They poison your whole body. And, and here's the thing. You have more good cells than cancer cells. So they hope that in poisoning all the cells, you can ultimately kill off all the cancer cells and, and you're killing off good cells too, but because you have more of those, you still can live. That's essentially what they're doing. That was kind of a joke, but... You guys are just, but it's true. Like, you're just like killing off lots of good and bad cells, but you just have more good ones and bad ones. So, so, I mean, but like, wouldn't it be nice if we can get the good without the bad? Amen? All right. So I went to this Asian youth conference over in Malaysia. By the way, the food in Malaysia is some of the best food in the world. By far. I love it. And it was so good. And I went to this youth conference, and um, it was at a nice resort, kind of like this. And uh, it was all led by young people, just like GYC, very similar to GYC. And I was amazed at these young people. Many of them were just ages 15 and up. Some of them <clears throat> were in the church, 15 years old. I went to this one church over there, and there was about 120 people in the church. And about 100 of them were 25 and under. And they all ran the church. I mean, the head deacon was like 16 years old. The head elder was like 20. And I mean, they just ran their own church. They preached, and, and it was amazing. And they would go out, and they would do outreach into the community, and they would bring in more young people. So you had young people that were 14, 15, 16, being baptized. Many of them were like, their parents were dead. They were orphans or living with relatives or something. But these young people were very dedicated, and they produced like three ABN quality filming. Um, they edited it, they filmed it, they did all these things. It was quite impressive. I was just amazed. But they had a game day, and they had these uh, cooperating games, very powerful. And uh, so, like, for instance, here's one where we would get like maybe 10 or 12 people in a line, one on each side, and you would... Um, you would get on each side of each other, and you'd, you have to pull, every, everyone has to pull up. But you can't, like, touch the ground with your hands. You have to pull with each other, so you have to cooperate to get to the top. And they, they had an element of competition, but it wasn't competition with each other. It was competition against the clock and against ourselves. Does that make sense? Okay? So that's the difference. Now, they had other games. I'm trying to remember some of them, but... Um, where everybody has to get through the hula hoop without it touching the ground. Um, and I was there. I was a lot fatter then. but um, <laughs> I was, That was actually a year after my chemo treatment. And uh, I was not in the best of health. I wasn't very healthy there. Here's another one where uh, everybody has a balloon in between them. And you're a giant caterpillar and you have to get a certain distance uh, in a certain amount of time without popping a balloon. 
you pop a balloon, you have to start over. Anyway, I mean, it was just a lot of cool stuff. Here was one where you had a plastic bag and, and it had holes in it. And you had a ball that you had to work all the way down to the end and then back again without it going in the holes. Um, here was a thing, <clears throat> this was one of my favorites, where they had this, this pole and everybody has to get across the pole, right? And there are some people who can easily jump over that pole without any problem. I mean, tall, skinny guys, right? Girls, they just come up and they just jump over. But then you have other people who are bigger who can't jump so high, and I was still sick, so I couldn't jump that high. But the thing is, everybody has to figure out how to get everybody else across that thing without touching it or knocking it off. If you touch it or knock it off, everybody has to go back over and start again, right? And so if you get it in a certain amount of time, you get a prize. You get, I gave you some candy or something. And so you can see what they were doing to me. They actually picked me up, and they got over. So they had to, some of the guys that could easily jump it went over first, and then all the middle guys that couldn't get over as much, they had to go in the middle, and there would be people on each end that would lift them over, and then the, then the last guys would be guys that could get over easy again, and they would jump over. So you had to figure it out. You had to think. You had to group think and team think. That's true teamwork. What do you say? That's true teamwork. And you might say, well, those games are boring. They weren't boring. They were lots of fun. This young guy right here, was 22 years old. He had been an atheist. He was converted at 20 years old. He was a factory, he was a manager in a factory, and he oversaw more than 1,000 workers. He was a plant manager at 22 years old. And when he came there, he made a decision to quit that job, and uh, he worked in China, he was going to go into the ministry. You see, God has great things planned for us, Amen. God wants us to do great things. But this is just an experience. I mean, these are just things that there's endless amounts of things that can be substituted for that. Notice some of these scientific findings. It says, this is uh, from a study that was done called More Than Just a Game. It says, those who engage in organized competitive sports may experience a stress known as pre-competitive anxiety while preparing for the event as well as emotional competitive anxiety during the game. How many of you ever, ever experienced that? Yeah? Now, I don't know why this thing keeps doing this. Some sports, such as karate, ice hockey, and others, are associated with elevated systolic blood pressure, anger, and hostility. I mean, these are things I've already kind of talked about. Statistical study from the Cooperative Learning Center did a study on 57 Olympic hockey players ages 18 to 29. Here's what they found. They examined the correlation between cooperation, competition, I misspelled that, and mental health. Results found that the more cooperative individuals were psychologically, I'm sorry, that the more cooperative individuals were psychologically and physically healthier than their more competitive colleagues. That's science. Science. Competition or the constant feeling that one has to work against something. You know, when you're in competitive sports, you're always feeling that edge. I have to, I ha even academics, I mean, you fill in the blank. Some of you here may not be athletic. You may be academic, and that's fine. Or music. It can be anything in life. But if I constantly feel like I have to be the best and I'm constantly competing, 
It can give actually physical and mental anxiety and sickness. Some of you know that. I puked before a lot of football games. I mean, I know. Some evidence even concluded that cooperation and unselfish behaviors can produce a type of runner's high. In other words, when I, when I, when I cooperate and when I'm unselfish and when I'm self-sacrificing towards others, then guess what? I experience a kind of, they call it a runner's high, but what do we call it? We call it the joy of Jesus, amen? That's what it is. It's the peace of God that comes into our hearts. You see, here's, here's one of the greatest evidences against evolution, all right? Think about this for just a minute. Survival of the fittest says what? Says that there's, two pe- there's one piece of bread... And there's two of us, and there's nothing else to eat, and only that one piece of bread is going to keep one of you alive. Who's going to get it, right? Whoever gets it, that's the survival of the fittest, right? Correct? Yes? So if evolution is true, and we're nothing but advanced animals, then if I participate in survival of the fittest, and let's say there's that one piece of bread and, and I have to kill you to get to it. Then if I kill you and I eat that bread, how should I feel? Hmm? How should I feel? I should feel satisfied. I should be, feel happy. I should be able to look at your dead body. I mean, I'm just being graphic here. And think, wow, job well done. Right? I mean, like, I, I took care of business. I got what was needed for my survival. Too bad for him. He was a nice guy, but... I got to do what I got to do, right? And I should feel actually good about that. So, here's the thing. According to Darwinianism, evolution, survival of the fittest, selfishness should make me feel good. But all of you in this room, whether no matter what your level of spirituality is, I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be higher for some and lower for others probably. But anyone in this room can answer this question. Does selfishness make you feel better, yes or no, in the long term? No, it doesn't. And some of the most selfish people who are unwilling to turn to God are some of the most miserable people on the planet. And some of the most unselfish, giving people I've ever met who have nothing in their life are some of the happiest people I know. So the other thing is that an unselfish act, if Darwinianism and all that is true, An unselfish act should make me feel how? Bad. It should make me feel bad because if evolution is true, then if I do something self-sacrificing for someone else, that's not good because I need that for my own survival, right? But if I do something that is unselfish, what's your response? How many of you were here for Pathways to Health? Most of you that were here probably spent a lot of money to be here. It was a sacrifice. You had to pay for your hotel room. You had to pay for your travel here, et cetera, et cetera. But when you saw the looks on those people's faces, you may have been giving up your salary. I mean, you may have been having to take vacation days or not being paid at work. But when you saw the smile on those people's faces, what did it do to your heart? It warms your heart, see? To me, that's the greatest evidence that evolution is false. Think about it. We find the peace of Christ. The study also found that like individuals who exercise regularly to release endorphins 
I'm sorry, like individuals who exercise regularly to release endorphins, people who are cooperative and help others also experience a type of high described as calmness and sense of freedom from stress. That sounds like the peace that Jesus offers to me. How about you? Very much so. Additionally, individuals with a cooperative stance tend to feel more in control of their lives and do not live for approval from others. Isn't that interesting? This is in sharp contrast to the constant intensity of the competitive individual. How many of you, if you've experienced both sides of the fence, can testify that these things are true today? Amen. Many of you are raising your hand. There was another study <coughs> done by the University of California in Berkeley found that children who engage in such high-contact games as football or others develop moral standards more slowly. Isn't that interesting? Are more aggressive off the playing field and less mature in their oral reasoning. Ever heard of the phrase dumb jock? Well, it's kind of where it comes from. Children who are placed in a cooperative rather than competitive setting, however, tend to have, a higher, have higher levels of self-efficiency efficiency and achievement than those who compete. And interesting. Cooperative games, this is also from the study, cooperative games result in better cooperation during free time, free play time. So in other words, even when, when people are not, like when a teacher says, okay, come over here, we're going to play this nice cooperating game, you know, everybody has to be cooperative. But even when she sets them free to go off and play in the playground, in an unstructured environment, they're still what? They're still more cooperative. Is that interesting? While competitive games result in increased aggression during unstructured playtime. So the kids that were involved in cooperation were less competitive when they weren't in that than those that were. Very powerful. And lastly here, cooperative problem solving increases intrinsic motivation, more rapid problem solving, positive interaction, and higher belief in success. This is a study done. There's many studies like this that are done. We're, gonna, uh, we're going to do this quote and then, well, we've got four minutes here. Um, I'm going to read this and then we're going to take a break here in just a minute. But I want you to notice the difference between God's plan and the world's plan. Notice they're both encapsulated in this paragraph. Watch this. In God's plan, there is no place for selfish rivalry. Those who measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves among themselves are not wise. We read that text earlier. Whatever we do is to be done as of the ability which God giveth. Do you realize that brilliancy is not spirituality? What do I mean by that? There are some brilliant speakers in the Adventist church. Are you with me? And many times we like to compare speakers amongst themselves. Oh, I like him because he, he stimulates my mind or he brings out these cool points or he's very animated or he's whatever. But Ellen White says that if brilliancy is a thing to be considered to be worshipped, then we ought to owe our homage to Satan. Because other than God, he's the most brilliant being that there is. Brilliancy is not spirituality. 
I would rather be filled with the Spirit of God than to be brilliant. Are you with me? I would rather be filled with the Spirit of God than to be the best of whatever it is this life has to offer. The best businessman, the best piano player, the best violin player, the best sports player. I'd rather be filled with the Spirit of God because it's not so much about what you can do but what God does for you and through you. That's what makes you great. One, our conference president always says, blessed is the man that works for God, but more blessed is the man who can get God to work for him. Are you with me? That's the greater thing. Is God working in your life? And is God working for you? Well, what would he be doing if he's working for me? Is he drawing people to you to point them to him? Because that's the ultimate purpose in life, is to know God and to make him known. Amen? Precious the service done and the education gained in carrying out these principles. But how widely different is much of the education now given? From the child's earliest years, it is an appeal to emulation and what? Rivalry. Is this true? Do we do it even now? Like from first grade, are we taught kindergarten? Are we taught to compete with each other? What do you think? We're taught it. It's built into our structure. From the child's earliest years, emulation and rivalry, it fosters selfishness, the root of all evil. We need a restructure in our thinking, don't we? So is God trying to take away all our fun from us? Are you sure? Well, what does the Bible say? Psalm 84, 11. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You can bet your life on this. That if there's anything in this world or this universe that is truly good for you, God will give it to you. Amen? And if God says no, even though you may not understand there must be something about it that he knows that you don't know. How many of you, when your parents said, you know, I don't want you to do this, or I don't want you to do that, you're like, oh, are you kidding me? Right? And you're just like, give me a break, you know? I, I want, there's no harm in doing this. But then the older you got, you kept doing that, and you realized that it became a problem. You thought, you know what? Maybe my parents knew something I didn't. How many of you, how many of you could confess at least one thing where that was the case? Let me tell you a secret. The older you get, the more experiences you'll have with that. Okay? You'll say, now I know why they were telling me not to, not to you know, swing from the, from the ceiling fans and that kind of a thing, right? And so, and so here's the thing. God knows a lot of stuff that you and I don't know. God knows where every path and every road leads to. You and I don't. And the only way for you to actually experience to, to, to know is one of two ways. Either go down the road yourself and then it's too late and there's big consequences at the end or just very simply believe what God says and do that and be on the path. And let me tell you, you stay on the path that God has for you, you're not going to be bored. You're not going to be without something to do. You're going to have the greatest adventures of your life when you're walking in God's path, I can promise you that those have been my adventures. The greatest adventures I've ever had in my life have been since I became a Christian. Amen? All right. Now, what about ball? Can we play ball? 
We're going to talk about that after lunch. What kind of ball can we play? How do I know where to cross the line? How do I know where to draw the line, I meant to say? And how do I know if I'm crossing the line? How do I know if I'm becoming too competitive? What's okay? What's not okay? We're going to talk about that after lunch. How many of you coming back? All right. Very good. Let's stand and pray, and then we're going to break. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunities that we've had here together. We pray your Holy Spirit would draw us close to you again. Thank you, Lord, that you've spoken to our hearts. And I pray, Father, that as we reflect upon these things, that in our own hearts we would recognize that some things may need to change in our lives, that we may need to make decisions that would reflect more of your glory in our lives and less of our own, that you would help us, Lord, to bring out the best in us and not the beast in us. And we want to pray, Father, that your spirit would take control of our hearts and lead us down the upward path that you want us to walk. And Lord, that we would seek the best, not just what is good or better or okay, but we would seek the best that you have to offer us. So we praise you. We thank you, Father, for your kindness and goodness to us, Lord. And I pray that there's someone here even right now that needs to make a surrender in their life of whatever magnitude that they will make that decision just now, Lord. Maybe they want to give up competitive sports, competitive academics, competitive music, whatever it may be. They want that element of competition to be gone from the thing that they love. And so we pray, Father, that you'd put that in our hearts today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.